You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. One of the things I'm very interested in is how we find ourselves living in a society that I hear is the freest society on planet Earth, but yet we find ourselves enslaved to social categories, caste systems, though loose and eased up, nonetheless exist. So much so that we find ourselves just only 70 years removed from the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, which leads me to Greensboro. It's in Greensboro, North Carolina on February 1st, 1960. The Greensboro Four decided they had had enough of the indifference of the white establishment. They had had enough using a different water fountain and not being able to go to the library. So in their dorm room the night before, Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, Ezell Blair, and David Richmond decided that they couldn't just sit by with a posture of indifference. That if the whites were going to be indifferent, and if other African-American men and women are going to be indifferent, in the light of a system of oppression, they were no longer going to be. And so inspired by the nonviolent teachings of nonviolent teachings of Jesus Christ, exemplified by Gandhi and Dr. King, and then by, if you listen to their own stories, a strong influence of their parents, they decided to challenge the system. See, society told them that only whites could sit at the lunch counter at Woolworths. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a Woolworths. It was so interesting in Woolworths, the, 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 the place is still there. It's, it's turned into the International Civil Rights Museum, which is how Adam and I chose to end our, our weekend is spending time there. But I'd known about the Greensboro Four, which is why I wanted to go to the museum, among other things, but I knew that we would get to see the place um, where something um, incredible and hard and beautiful and ugly and redemptive happened. And as I stepped onto the, to the floor, it reminded me of going to Woolworths with my grandma. And I was, it was surreal. Like, I didn't realize that Woolworths had like the market cornered on that particular type of floor. Strange. Well, on February 1st, 1960, these four young black men stepped foot on that floor, sharply dressed, and they stepped in at about 4.30. And at the lunch counter, a place where only whites could sit, they decided to take a, sit, a seat. They, they sat, and they sat quietly. And they got the attention of the waitress, and they asked simply for a cup of coffee, a donut, and a side of cream. And they were ignored at first, and then denied service, and eventually just asked to leave. Franklin McCain, one of the Greensboro Four, tells it like this. He tells us that the waitress looked at amazement with a puzzled look when these young men sat there and asked for service. And she said to them, I'm sorry, but we cannot serve you. And Franklin said that he responded, but we beg to disagree with you. Who said? Why not? Well, it's just custom that we don't serve colored people at this counter, she said. He responded, well, you'll agree that the custom is wrong and bad, won't you? And she responds, I didn't make the custom. It's just the way we do things. I cannot serve you here 
And if you insist, I'm going to have to get the manager. So Graham says, so McCain says that the manager comes out all red-faced and puzzled, and he says, what do you boys want? And McCain said they responded, we simply want to be served. And he said, well, I can't serve you here. Said, can't or won't? What's the problem? The manager said, we just don't serve colored people at this counter. You can order, you can take your meal, and you can go, but you can't sit here. McCain says he responded, why not? I mean, do you condone this custom of discrimination? And, of course, the manager responds, I didn't make the custom. I just abide by it. I just go along with it. Franklin responded, we're asking you to go along with what is fair and what is right. The manager says, I can't do that. So after about 15 more minutes, a policeman comes in and He looks in amazement and in anger at what he sees with these four young college men, well-dressed, though very polite, sitting at this counter where they don't belong. And he paces the floor, and he pounds a stick in his palm of his hand. And McCain says it was at that moment that he began to realize that it could come to an end for him, that in his words, my brains are about to be splattered all across the floor. But after the policeman paces two or three more times, McCain realizes something, and he says, I realized at that moment we had him. He couldn't do anything to us. And nothing happened, and the store closed. But the word got out. That picture you see there was snapped the first night of. Night number two comes, and it's not just a Greensboro Four, it's about 45 more young black men and women showing up at the counter to have a seat. So many so that there was no other room for anybody else. And as word quickly spread through the black community, word spread through the white community, and whites began to show up, and some were affirming them and saying they're doing a good job and that it should have been done a long time ago, while others were pouring hot coffee on their back, spilling ketchup and mustard on their face, dipping water on their head, and some even lighting their clothes on fire. And yet these men and women sat there in peace and in quiet and in resistance, in protest. And they were told that they were disturbing the peace because, you know, that's what protests do, right? They disturb the peace. That's why we don't like them. They upset the social order of things. There's a report that two white men stood beside McCain and one spat in his face. And one of the Greensboro Four tell us that Franklin turned around and said to that man, I love you because you are my brother. And it's reported that that man looked at his companion and said, did you hear what he said? And his companion responded, I'll see what he says when I do it to him. So he spat in Franklin's face and Franklin McCain responded to him and said, I too love you because you are my brother, and I will treat you with respect. And the man turned to his friend and said, these are some kind of nuts. And they walked away. By day three and four, 300 more students showed up in the protest. And by now, the sit-in protest had spread across town and was in 21 different cities. This is before Twitter. (laughs) 
By the second week, 112 more cities were performing their own sit-ins, and the protests dragged on for months as many demonstrations took place and many arrests of young black men and women. And by now, white men and women in college age, primarily white men and women, are joining them in the protests, joining them at the counters. They were doing that in the first week. By about day three and day four, they were joining them, and there was a sense of solidarity, and there was this movement taking place. And it got President Eisenhower's attention, and it started getting a lot of people's attention. But it certainly got the management's attention because on July 25th, as he was managing his books, he realized he was losing money. And so he decided on July 25th of that year, the manager at Woolworths, that, um, you know, we'll integrate the counter. And this little movement was a part of a larger movement that gave credence to the movement of sit-in protests. Bob Zellner, a white man who used to work with the committee that Ella Baker, one of the civil rights activists, uh, founded, I spent a couple of weekends with him learning about movements and community organizing. And He was recruited by Rosa Parks. I've told you the story about him before and Dr. King. And He would tell me that because of this movement, they would then practice sit-ins all across the country. They would practice them by pouring hot coffee on one another and lighting one another on fire. That was practice to make sure that come hell or high water, there would never be a violent response. They were driven by this sense that it wasn't right to be indifferent to what was going on in society, and somebody had to say something. See, today is about indifference. And God has something to say about indifference. And Amos has something to say about indifference. And I want to remind us of Amos's context if we look at Israel's rap sheet. Amos was an owner of fig orchards, orchards, orchards. Ah, one of the college students told me I kept saying orchids. Now I'm just hooked on. He, was, he owned stuff. And he was a sheep breeder. And he arrived at a time when, if you read the context, and it's all here, Israel was experiencing great economic and military expansion, where nationalism and patriotic elitism was on order. It was an unhealthy patriotism. It was this idea that they were better than every other place, and and a growing upper class living in luxury that was completely indifferent to the plight of the poor was dominating their society at the time. The rich were increasing their wealth by by eminent domain practices. They were taking possession of the land of the poor debtors, and, and also then subjecting them to slavery. The most vulnerable among them were denied justice in the courts, and laws and policies and legislative procedures were upheld that continued to build systems of oppression even among themselves. And, and Amos even says that their justice had turned into wormwood. That's his language. And it was bitter in taste, and it was a joke. And that super-religious worship was offered, and unjust business practices were accepted, and self-indulgence was encouraged. And when Yahweh would send a prophet and offer discipline, it was rejected. And to reject the prophet was to reject Yahweh and was to have oneself rejected. And so in Amos chapter 6, we read Amos 5 last week, now we read Amos 6, and we encounter the woes. Now, woe in the Hebrew is like yelling fire in a crowded theater. It's an attention-getting word. So when Amos stands, wherever Amos stands, and he says, whoa, it's a word with a sharp tone that gets everybody's attention, and people are like, did he just say whoa? 
And so he says, woe to those who are at ease. Say at ease. At ease in Zion. And to those who feel secure. Say secure. On the hill of Samaria. The notable people. You're going to hint a little sarcasm, by the way. The notable people in this first of the nations. Those the house of Israel comes to. Cross over to Kalna and see. Go over there to Great Hamath and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? You better than them? Is your territory larger? Or is their territory larger? You dismiss any thought of the evil day, and in your dismissal, in your denial, in your willful blindness, you usher in the reign of violence. They lie on beds and laid with ivory sprawled out on their couches and dine on lambs from the flocks and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bullful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. You sit there in your place of comfort and ease and in your place of security and your patriotic elitism, thinking that you are the exceptional ones and that you are the greatest place on planet Earth, and you throw your parties in your second and third houses while sitting completely indifferent to the plight of others, particularly, he says, your brother. Therefore, Yahweh says, Therefore, Yahweh says, I'm going to have to send you into exile. I'm going to have to try to get your attention because you're not listening to the prophets. So I'm going to save you somehow by sending you into exile and you're going to be the first to go. And then Yahweh says, and I almost kind of picture this sort of under his breath. The Lord has sworn by himself, this is the declaration of Yahweh, the God of hosts. And I hear him saying this under this breath. I loathe Jacob's pride and hate her citadels. So I will hand over the city and everything in it. She thinks she's so good. She thinks she's so much better than everybody else. And yet she sees the indifference that lies right within her, the vulnerable among her. She takes the land she wants. She dehumanizes the people she wants to dehumanize. And he says, I, I hate this. Because indifference is far from the heart of God. And indifference couldn't be farther from the character of God. And we know this to be true. We know that indifference is far from the heart of God. Because indifference is a lack of interest. It's a lack of concern. Indifference is a, is a, is a way of just simply ignoring what's going on or, or being schooled in denial or embracing what narrative psychology says is a willful blindness to what is going on. It, 
Indifference is a way of projecting my own experiences upon another who claims to have a worse experience than I, and then I say to them, but because your experience isn't my experience, you must be wrong. Indifference is a lack of concern. It's a lack of interest. And it comes when we find ourselves complacent. Or it comes when we find ourselves just filled with pride of idolatry and ethnic elitism or patriotic elitism. We're concerned about our own backyard. As we drink wine by the bowlful with our house bands playing the music like Israel, and we find that indifference is far from the heart of God because it's not anything remotely close to what God has done for us, and we know it. We know it because we know the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We know the story. We know that the story goes like this, that, that, that Jesus is trying to tell the story that explains the heart of God. And he says, so there's this boy, and he goes to his daddy. And he says to his daddy, daddy, I want all my inheritance. And what does the daddy do? He gives it to him because God will give us what we want. And he says, dad, I want my inheritance. And so the father gives him the inheritance. And remember what the boy does with the inheritance? What does he do? He goes to Vegas, baby. He plays every slot sheen and every card table. He eats at the finest restaurants. He dines at the best clubs. He goes to the best shows. And he ends up, what? Broke. He squanders it. And he wrecks his life. And he ends up as a Jewish boy sitting in, in a mud filled with in, in, in a pig pen. And now he's religiously unclean on top of it all. I mean, he, he did this himself. We have a saying, see? We have a saying. You make your bed, you what? And that's what he's got to do. You did it to yourself. It's his fault. Did his friends make him do it? No. Did the devil make him do it? No. He did it. That's on him. His choice, his consequence. Right? Tough love. So he comes to his senses. And so he starts coming up with this way he's going to grovel before God, before his father. He's going to, I'm going to grovel before him. I'm going to beg him to take me back. Matter of fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, God, uh, Father, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Just let me be a slave. Like, just let me be a slave. I blew it. So he rehearses it. So he gets up and he goes. And he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? And then the father ran and threw his arms around his boy and kissed him. And the son had a story. He says, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to call your son. And I envision the father going, psst, psst, psst. No, 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 no. And he stops him and he's like, Yo, hey, hey, yeah, get, get, the, get the fatted calf and get the ring and get the robes. We're going to party. Get it out. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to party. My boy is back. He is back and we're going to celebrate. And we talk about, when we talk about the story, we talk about love. But that's not what the story's about, in my opinion. The story's not about love. The story's about compassion. 
That's why Jesus wanted us to make sure that it was compassion that compelled his father. See, you need to know a little something about the word compassion. Compassion in its literal definition has to do with an upheaval, an emotional upheaval of the bowels, right? Like it's about having irritable bowel syndrome. Like I want to talk to you today, church, about your bowels. Welcome to our church. We'll talk about your guts. Seriously, the word in the Greek, it means, it means, it's a, it means an upheaval, an emotional upheaval of the bowels. Like, that's the word. That's what it means. And it's a verb. It's not a feeling. It's not a noun. It's not a feeling sorry for. It's not a sympathy. It's a, it's a verb. It is something that when it is felt, it has to act. It's not like, oh, man, I feel so bad for that boy. Because what the father didn't do is when the boy was coming back, the father didn't just stand there with his arms folded and go, Glad you're back, son. Go on in the house. Mama got dinner ready. We'll talk about this when I get in. He didn't do that. When he saw his boy, something turned inside and he ran. And it was so sharp and it was so strong that all he could do was just act. And all he could do was just celebrate. All he could do was just embrace because what we learn about compassion is that compassion doesn't judge, it acts. He didn't say, all right, boy, have a seat. Have a seat, we need to talk through. Now, why you spend your money? Now, you made your own bed. These are the consequences. I ain't giving you anything. I ain't throwing you no party. I gave you all my money already. I ain't putting all my, take the ring off. Take the... He didn't do any of that. He didn't come back in and have to meet with, with the other servants and decide whether or not his son was worthy of being received and worthy of being celebrated. If you look here on the screen, it says it. Compassion doesn't judge, it acts. It doesn't run him through some quiet application process to see if he's worthy of the compassion that I feel. In America, compassion judges. In the church today, compassion judges. It tries to determine, is one worthy of what I feel in my gut about what I need to do? And we decide that, and if we don't determine that they're worthy, we do nothing at all. Our compassion says, if I love them, will they hurt me? Because if I hurt me, if they hurt me, then I can't do anything about it, because fear drives out compassion. But compassion drives out fear. And when you feel it in your gut, and your bowels are irritated over what you see, you got to do something or you do nothing at all. But if you do nothing, it's not compassion. It's just feeling sorry for somebody. And that's not in the Bible. Compassion is. Raise your hand if you've ever seen something that you know that you know was wrong based upon your faith and you felt sick at your stomach. Compassion. Compassion doesn't judge. It doesn't determine who's worthy and who's not. That's not compassion. That's Americanism. That's humanism. That's not Christianity. See, my problem is, I think I'm smart. See, I've been working within the homelessness world for 15 years of my life. And two years ago, this little boy up here was only six years old. And I decided, because I've written some stuff and I know some social science behind poverty, I decided after about 12 years that I was no longer going to give money to people who are homeless. 
You know, because I I now ha- I knew enough sociology, I've been trained enough, and I've seen enough in my life that I knew that there are certain sociological implications to doing this sort of thing. And so I know too, I knew, and you can write this down, that Proverbs 19.17 that says, kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord, and he will reward the lender. I knew that, and I'd lived on that for 12 years, knowing that when I gave to the poor, I was given to the Lord. I was given to them to the Lord. Like I was, it was kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord, and he'll reward the lender. So I wasn't in the business of judging and running people through an application process trying to figure out if they were going to spend the money that I gave them on the things that I wanted to give them for. But I got smart. And so I decided I wasn't going to do it anymore. And so we're in Baltimore, me, Alice, and Ian, we're going to watch an Orioles game, and my little six-year-old boy sees a homeless man flying a sign, and Ian tugs on my pants, and he says, Daddy, he's homeless. Give him some money. See, my boy, he's been around homelessness all his life. He was around homelessness when it was his mama's womb. Like, when Allison was beautiful and pregnant, she would walk down the bridge with pizza in her hands, and we would sit there, and we would, we would spend time with people under the bridge. I mean, Ian's been around it all his life before he ever took his first breath. He, Mr. Tommy, Mr. Mr. Doug, Mr. Frank, Mr. Lonnie, Mr. Mr. Collins, Mr. Mr. Patty, and Mr. Donnie, and, and Mr. Charles, and all these people that are all, all part of his life and his life all around. He's been around people who have just found themselves in these hard situations all his life. And, and so he sees this man. It's not even a question. He feels it in his gut. And so what does he do? He asks his daddy. He says, Daddy, we give him some money. I say, buddy, here's the deal, bud. We're not going to do that anymore. Now, you know, we've done this stuff all our life, all your life, but we've decided there's a different way to do things. You know what my son said to me? He literally asked me a question. Aren't you a Christian? And I was like, you have a job? I said, yeah, and then he literally asked me this question. Aren't you a pastor that teaches people about Jesus? He asked me that question. That little six-year-old mouth. Mouth writing a check it can't cash. I said, yeah. And then he said the question. And what are you going to do? I thought about it for a minute, and I wanted to say, we're going to go to the Orioles game, man. That's why we're in Baltimore. He wasn't going to let me off the hook. So we gave him some money. That's what we did. See, because my boy taught me something about compassion that day. That compassion doesn't allow us to judge. And it compels us to act. See, he felt something turning over in his gut when he saw that man. And he wasn't going to let his smart daddy off the hook. And you know, I got to thinking from that day forward, by the way, I repented before him, my wife, and the Lord, and I've changed my point of view. I'm going back the way I used to be, which is much more faithful than that nonsense. Because compassion doesn't act, doesn't judge, it acts. And when I see what God has done for me, how in the world would I think I could do it to somebody else? How? Raise your hand if you've ever asked God for wisdom more than three times and you've blown it every time. That's what I'm saying. I thank God that God didn't be like, hey, you know, um, son, I've talked to the angels. And um, we've decided we've given you wisdom 32 times. We're going to do something different this time. 
I'm glad he doesn't treat me that way. He gives liberally without reproach, James says. You know what that means? Without judgment. Because that's what a compassionate God does. But you know, I find that I'm never the prodigal son. I want to be the prodigal son because it's the, it's the feel-good part of the story, but I'm the brother. In the story, you remember the brother? He sits there all whiny out in the curb, but dada, I never, <laughs> it's not, he didn't say dada. Um, like, I never left you. I never did what brother did. Why is he getting all the attention? Why is he getting the party? Why is he getting the compassion? I mean, I've done what's right the whole time. And what does the father say to him? He says, sport. All I've got is yours, man. All you got to do is ask. Compassion. Because I know that because of our compassionate God, and I know that compassion is the opposite of indifference. Because compassion is the opposite of indifference. The church is called not to be indifferent, but to be compassionate. So the Apostle Peter, an elder in a church, once told the Christians to do to be like this. He said, now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and, say it with me, be compassionate, and, say it with me, humble. And here's what he does. He knows that they're living under the persecution of Nero. Context. And he doesn't leave this as a feel-good text. He actually says, and don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, be a blessing. So he knows that fear drives out compassion. What do we do? If we let him in, what do we do? If I take him in my home, what do I do? If I give him the money, what will he do? If I get near him, what will he do? He knows in the context that what will drive out compassion is the fear. Because fear drives out love, it drives out compassion every single solid time. And so he purposefully, what seems to be out of nowhere, reminds them to not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. He knows that. So he says that. And we don't like that because that sounds too much like love your enemy stuff that Jesus used to teach all the time. But he says, I want your bowels to be irritated at what is broken in this world. And when you see somebody who is made in the image of God treated like they're not simply because their skin is brown or black or because their ethnicity is from somewhere in the Middle East or because they have a different religion, you as my people, I don't know what to do on Capitol Hill, but I know what to do because of Calvary Hill. You as my people do what you're supposed to do and act, act. 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 Don't just feel sorry. Because you got to be a what? Be a blessing. Since you were called for this so that you can what? I don't know how you misunderstand this at all, but I know I did that day in Baltimore because I'm smart. It took a six-year-old to remind me of a biblical truth. And he's doing it all the time, man. So like I get a call from Allison three weeks ago. A text message, actually. Text message says, they had already gotten home. It's about 12.30, 12.45. I had to meet with somebody after here. And then Allison says, Ian saw a homeless lady and looked like she was about to cry. She was flying a sign, and he wanted to give her some money. I didn't have any money, and he wants you to give her some money, period. I'm like, all right, go get a job, man. So I go to the bank, 
And I withdraw some money. She's standing right here at the red light at Monticello. I park over here. I walk down across the traffic. Get about right there. I see her. I say, hold out the money. I say, um, hey, my name is Fred. My eight-year-old boy saw you standing here, and he wanted me to give you this. Can I come to you? And she said, yeah, and she kind of walked to me. I walked to her, and I gave her the money. And with, when she looked at the money, without a warning, she wrapped her arms around me and pulled her in to my arms. And she nestled her head in my shoulder and she wept. Now, you need to know that there was a line of cars here waiting for the light to turn. This lane was still going. This line of cars here was waiting for a light to turn. And we're just hugging it out, man, in the middle of the median. And I began to feel stirred, like Ian. And when we're done hugging, I look to my right, and all of a sudden the windows of every single car rolls down. And out of the windows come a hand filled with cash. And she goes and collects the cash. And so I asked her if she wanted to walk with me to my car. And she asked me the question, are you safe? <laughs> I'm like, I know I'm handsome, but I don't look dangerous. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm a pastor. I probably like, don't know if you think that's safe, but <laughs> talk to some people here. They may not think it's safe. We walked to my car, gave her some resources. You know, I found out her story. See, about nine months ago, her 16-year-old son died unexpectedly of a sickness. And her husband and herself just couldn't hack it. And he turned to drinking and turned to abuse. And she heard about <coughs> domestic violence shelter she could get into on this side of the map. She came here, but it was full at the time. And so, well, she was standing in the median flying a sign trying to get some money to go to a family member in another city. And it dawned on me that just like me that day in Baltimore, every one of those folks were sitting in that car and I, I, I got to believe they felt it in their gut. But they were too smart. Because you know, you give her money, what does she buy liquor? What does she, what does she got five jobs? And you give her an extra $10, she got like a bonus. You know? So the windows stayed up. Until they saw something that gave them permission to roll the window down. See, I'm learning all the time. Compassion doesn't judge. It just acts. It trusts God with the consequences. No matter what they are. But what it cannot do is be ignored and push me into the plane of indifference. Because that plane will crash. And that's what we learned from Amos. And I think to myself, every week, we come to the table of compassion. Every week. I put the bread that is the body of Christ in my mouth. I drink the cup that is the blood of Christ. And it runs down my body, inside me, into my gut. 
in the hope that it will stir and turn over my gut when I see something wrong with the world because I'll remember that God who saw something wrong with me saw something right. And he came after us anyway. And he didn't wait for us to come. He ran to us. He stooped down, put skin on, and he embraced every one of us, every single one of us. There is nothing any of us could ever do or has ever done that would keep God from running to us. I mean, running to us and throwing a party with us. We don't even have to explain ourselves. He, he knows because He loves and it doesn't matter because He loves and He forgives and He just wants us to stay for the celebration. And so every week we get the table and we get to come and we get to remember the God of all compassion. But I realized that I forgot that when I leave the table of compassion, I'm supposed to leave a more compassionate man and leave the judge into God and just be a blessing. And it takes an eight-year-old, a childlike faith, to make me a more compassionate Christian. 